Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, you are sovereign and you are good and you are loving and you are merciful and you are our Redeemer. We thank you for the work that you have done on our behalf. We ask that now as we turn to address your word, that it would be you that is heard and honored, that we would see you as who you are, and that you will help us to be faithful in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before I uh, read today's text, I, I want to revisit some of the things from last week. When we looked at some of those texts related to the God-commanded conquest of the land that included killing everyone, even babies. These texts and that issue really can be a stumbling block, not just for non-Christians, but for Christians. One of the most essential things we talked about last week was how important it is to maintain a correct perspective when approaching these texts. And that perspective has to do with understanding and acknowledging that God is God, and God is good, and God is just, all the time, regardless of how we might process whatever is before us. When we approach the issue we discussed last week, or other issues raised by the Bible, or candidly, even issues in our own lives, from a perspective that we, humans, are good and innocent, or that we deserve anything from God or that we have value apart from his grace and mercy and love, things get out of whack. And this directly applies to those texts. If we assume that the people God told Israel to destroy were basically good or that there had to be some innocent people there somewhere, or that God was being harsh to wipe them all out, we fail in our understanding of this passage. And a ton of other passages in the Bible also. And we fail in our understanding of life. Because our premise is wrong. And we're missing the point of the story. The truth is that those people... Israel, the Canaanites, us, are not okay and are not innocent. We are, apart from God and his mercy and his grace, born and bathed in sin and its consequences. God also does not punish the innocent. He never will. And he never has. The only time it was even close that God would punish an innocent person was when he punished himself 
through the willing sacrificial death of his son for our benefit. The Canaanites, or we, are not innocent. The world was and is absolutely lost and headed for destruction, were it not for the grace and mercy of Almighty God. We also must remember that what happened in the conquest of the land was not primarily about punishment. It was about redemption. God's cleansing of the land and the death of his son was not about unjust harm. He was saving mankind. He was saving us. Remember, God did not come into the world or have the Israelites invade Canaan to condemn the world. Remember John 3.17. He did not come in to condemn the world, including the Canaanites, for we stood condemned already. He came to save and to redeem. That's what he does. The world and individuals in it are all drowning. And God did not toss toss us in the water. We chose it. We jumped into it. We might erroneously think or feel that God pushed us in the water or that he's pouring more water on us. But that is just not the case. They, the Canaanites, the Israelites, the people God ordered to be destroyed, we are drowning in condemnation and pending destruction and death, and it is because of our sin. And, and when the rubber meets the road, how we all got in that drowning water of condemnation really doesn't matter. Whatever theological situation you want to address, that's where we are. What matters is that God, who does not have to, and if you think about it, there's not much motive to, he does not have to care about us. But he does. He does. And God tossed us a life preserver, and he has made a way to save us. Even, and this is the crazy part, even as they and we fight against him. God's actions with the Israelites and the Canaanites and us was to save us and to bless us. We and they were all destined to die anyway and to be apart from him from all eternity. The killing of those babies and those people, and and keep this in mind, and himself 1,300 years later was because God was determined to save to redeem, even at, his, at the cost of his own life. We must approach those texts with that understanding. It's a big subject that we addressed, and, and I just hope that that helps. Now, concerning our text for today, let me take a drink here. Last week, we looked at how people today often feel about what God did back then 
so that he could reveal himself to the world. And we think about, you know, how we feel about that. Today, we are going to look at how some of those people back then responded to God himself. Joshua is old and getting ready to die. A ton of land has been conquered and allotments have been given to each tribe, even though at this point, Israel had yet to fully conquer the land or do what they were commanded to do by letting some of those people live. We'll see how that plays out in the next book, Judges, as well as the rest of the Old Testament, and and it's not good. Today, however, Joshua is speaking to the leaders and the people of Israel and fundamentally giving them a choice. He has just concluded a very succinct recap of what God had done, reminding them of God's sovereign leading and provision that had gotten them to the point that they are now in the promised land and experiencing the blessings he's promised, which they could not have even come close to imagining during their centuries in slavery in Egypt. And Joshua is calling them to make a choice, a clear final choice. Now hear the word of the Lord. This comes from chapter 22 starting chapter 24 starting in verse 14. This is Joshua speaking. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers who they served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way though that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we will serve the Lord for he is our God." But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you and after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote those words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth 
that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Thus ends the reading of the word. Today, we are going to look at four different responses to God that we see in the book of Joshua. That of Rahab, that of the Gibeonites, that of the five Amorite kings, all which are in earlier parts of the book. And finally, that of the Israelites, per the text that I just read. First, there's Rahab. As, As you recall, Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute from Jericho. Prior to Israel's crossing the Jordan River to begin the conquest of the Promised Land, Joshua sent out two spies to check things out. When the spies got to Jericho, things got a little dicey for them, and they were being hunted down. It turns out, though, that Rahab had been paying attention to to what was being said about the Israelites, who everyone knew were camped on the other side of the Jordan River. She had heard how they had been led by a God named Yahweh, who had done things like part the Red Sea and annihilate kings who went up against the Israelites. And she had reached a conclusion. And this is important, this, this, this part. Her, her conclusion was not primarily about her survival, since what she was about to do could have very easily led to her death at the hands of her own people. The conclusion she reached was that Yahweh was the one and only true God. When the opportunity to help these two spies arose, Rahab hid them. Again, we have to understand the great risk she put herself at. And although she does does seek protection for herself and her family, it, it was based on her belief in Yahweh. Hear what she said. This is from chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And here's the profession of faith. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab got it. She acknowledged Yahweh, and she was saved. And this Canaanite prostitute became integrated into Israel. 
She even became the great, 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 three greats, grandmother of King David and a bunch more greats of the very Messiah, Jesus. She believed in Yahweh. Next are the Gibeonites. This group of inhabitants of the land had also been paying attention and were also aware of those Israelites who had been parked across the Jordan River until they miraculously crossed it and destroyed Jericho and I. But their concern was primarily about survival, not conversion. So they concocted a ruse of old bread and worn out shoes and clothes worn out clothes and lying and deception and went to Joshua and told him that they were from a distant land and they had nothing to do with the idolatrous people of the land that Israel was about to process and destroy. And their ruse worked. And Israel made a treaty with them that they would not back down from. But their deception was discovered. And Joshua, who did not consult with the Lord in any of this process, uh, decided to honor that treaty, but he forced them into servitude or slavery. Now, they were not free, but they were alive. They had sought their own safety and survival first and foremost, and were relying on their cunning and a treaty. In the end, though, many of them were actually incorporated into the people of Israel. And they even, very soon after this event, received the protection of God via Israel. However, unlike Rahab, who became a true believer in Yahweh right, right away, the Gibeonites, at least initially, were only focused on this life not on the God of this life. Next are the five Amorite kings from the same people group as the Gibeonites. These kings also knew about the Red Sea dividing and the defeat of the other kings and the crossing of the Jordan and Jericho. But they refused to believe or in any way submit In fact, they were determined to go against Yahweh and his people. And to say the least, they were pretty ticked off at the Gibeonites for siding with Israel, regardless of why they did it or how they did it. So in their being against Yahweh, they they set out to destroy the Gibeonites first, and then they were going to turn and go after the Israelites. And, And their result was their total and absolute destruction. Finally, we have the response of the Israelites. Maybe there are some of you who are like Rahab, so lost in a pagan culture that you are destitute and demeaned. Perhaps you are now just hearing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and perhaps you are just now willing to confess him as Lord of heaven and earth and put your trust in him and him alone, even if it's unsafe, even if it might get you killed. If so, if that's you, put your trust in Yahweh. 
He is the only and he is the good God who has provided a way of salvation and that salvation is available to those who put their faith and trust in him. All believers before Christ, lost in our sin, should in a way say, yeah, I also identify with Rahab. Yet probably that is not where we are right now. Some of us might identify with the Gibeonites, whose primary concern was survival and avoiding judgment and destruction. If so, I hope you have, or will, transition from simply coming to the Lord to avoid destruction, transitioned to knowing him as your loving and redeeming God and Father. However, if fear of judgment is what got you to him in the first place, that's okay. I just hope you come to understand who Yahweh really is. I hope that none of us are like the Amorite kings who are simply and purely rejecting God and his authority regardless of the fact and the evidence that they saw. If you are like them, stop. Stop fighting. You will lose. Besides, the one you are fighting against is actually trying to save you and will bless you if you place your faith and trust in him. So I'm not sure how we really tie in or connect with those groups. But this last group, the Israelites, I believe most, if not all of us, are like them. Prior to our text, Joshua had recounted all of the blessings and things that God had done to and for these people. Numerous times, you have heard the scriptures and you've read and you've heard your pastor call you to remember those things God has done and the things he has done in our lives. From the work of creating everything to his work of saving us and blessing us and giving us a hope that the world does not have but desperately needs. We need to remember him and what he has done. That's why we celebrate communion and do baptisms. Hopefully it's what happens during Christmas and Easter and every Sunday when we gather to hear this word and sing his praises and fellowship in his presence. Hopefully, remembering is also what happens in your quiet times. And, in, and the second one's not so easy. And in your difficult times. Remembering what God has done is what Joshua has called and was calling the Israelites to do. We also are called to remember. After calling them to remember, Joshua says, Fear him which means to revere God, to recognize God as who he really is and to honor him as God. And then Joshua says, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. These are commands 
This is what we are supposed to do. Joshua ends this calling to remember and this calling to fear and serve God with a passage many of us have memorized or maybe even have written in your home somewhere. And Joshua said, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He is saying, Here I stand. Stand with me. And the people responded. Hear hear what they said in verses 16 to 19. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us up and our fathers from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples and the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. The people get it. At least that's what they said. Fundamentally, they are saying, Amen to Joshua's history lesson and to his calling them to remember and to fear God and to serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. The people even pledged with that joint pledge that they would do so, even declaring again that Yahweh is their God. All of this is followed by a very interesting section, verses 19 to 21, where Joshua basically sounds like he doubts their commitment. He, is, he also is reminding them of the consequences if they do not do what they are pledging and made the point that they would, that they would actually be their own witnesses, witnesses against themselves if they failed to do what they were pledging. To this, the people emphatically said, we are witnesses. Basically, that's their amen to his amen. All all seems good. They are remembering. They have acknowledged and pledged to serve God and reinforced their words with, we really mean it. We double dog swear it. They were serious. Then Joshua says, and here verse 23. Um, And Joshua said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. If you read the text closely, you are going to see that the Israelites never actually responded to Joshua's point. How could they? They had a bunch of idols packed away and on display in their homes. Instead of dealing with the elephant in the room that Joshua had just clearly pointed out, they defaulted and repeated their promise to serve the Lord, which we know by the rest of the Bible they didn't do a very good job of. Joshua ends by 
again reminding them that they are witnesses against themselves, that the truth of all that has, been, has transpired is recorded in the book of the law, and that there are memorials set up as witnesses. And they all went home. Now, why am I saying that we are like this group? Because we are. If we are totally honest or are willing to see what God knows, we would also admit it. We who truly do belong to Christ know that we have heard and we know the truth about who God is and what he has done. We have pledged to honor him and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. And we are our own witnesses, and we are surrounded by witnesses. And we still have idols. The comment by Joshua, now go get your idols, is something that if we are honest and understand, I'm not talking about little gold and silver figurines, those comments might cause that same discomfort in us that it did in those people. We know. And the people know the truth in their hearts. And they know that God knows. And so do we. If you can honestly say that this does not apply to you, which few people who are aware of their sinful nature can, then this doesn't apply to you. But if it does, and remember, God knows about the idols of pride and self-confidence. He is aware of the idols of financial security or entertainment or priorities from family to work that have we've allowed to outrank God. He even knows about our secret pet beliefs or ideas. God knows, and, and you probably do as well. If there is anything that we have placed above him and our determination to fear him and serve him in sincerity and in faith. So here's the challenge. The call. Get rid of those idols. Destroy them and fear God alone and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. We've talked about this previously when we saw how the Ephesian believers, even after coming to Christ and seeing and experiencing all kinds of wonderful things, had held on to their magic books. This was an issue for Jacob, one of our great patriarchs of the faith, and his family on their way back to the promised land, and they were packing some actual household idols, even in the midst of God's blessing and leading. This was an issue for Judas, who eventually made the very wrong choice. The people of God throughout history have had a hard time letting go of their idols. Even when we say that we are all in, God, 
just, just like the Israelites pledged. And I'm no exception, and my hunch is that, that you are not an exception either. And there are a plethora of witnesses around us, some invisible, some not. We also need to bear in mind Joshua's warning that there are consequences of our not fearing the Lord and not serving him sincerely and faithfully, evidenced by the presence of idols, which, by the way, are almost always related to failing to truly remember who God is and what he did. When you're doing that, there's no room for an idol. So let us get rid of our idols and let us honor God as who he is and let us serve him sincerely and faithfully. That's the call. That's what Joshua, this section is about. I want to end with something that I started today's today's message with. God is about redeeming. His desire is to save us. And that does not change when we mess up. That doesn't change when we make promises to him and and then have to confess later that we were holding something back or have to bring out an idol that needs to be destroyed. That doesn't change. And God being about redeeming doesn't change when we fail in our efforts to fear him, honor him, and serve him with sincerity and faithfulness. Now, absolutely, there might be consequences, and and our failures might mess things up for us. But it does not mess up God's desire to save us and know us and bless us for us to know the full measure of his love and grace. That does not change, nor does it change the reality that he will forgive us. Remember, the story, the story is about his redeeming us. That has not changed, and it never will. So what to do? For starters, let's join with Joshua and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now let's do whatever is necessary to prove it. Let's pray. Father, your faithfulness to us, your love for us, your grace demonstrated to us, your forgiveness your desire for us to know you. These these are beyond our understanding. Help us to experience them, though, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.